Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This time of year can be stressful for many. And today we'll hear about a new place in Atlanta with an unusual approach to stress relief. The SLUMU Institute opened a new hands-on sensory experience in Buckhead last month. It's a colorful atmosphere filled with slime showers, a slime wall, various ooey-gooey interactive elements, and a sensory room with kinetic sand. Later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans speaks with the slime queen herself, Karen Rabinovitz. First, four years after the beloved Black Panther movie was released, the sequel Wakanda Forever has hit the big screen. This comes after the tragic passing of actor Chadwick Boseman in 2020. He portrayed King T'Challa, the Black Panther. Now the torch has been passed to his sister, Princess Shuri, the tech wizard of Wakanda. Joining me now via Zoom to talk about Afrofuturism and the role of women in the new film are two Georgia Tech professors, Dr. Lisa Yasek, Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and Dr. Susanna Morris, Associate Professor of Literature, Media, and Communication and Black Media Studies. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much for having us on air, Lois. Yeah, this is a pleasure. After Black Panther was released in 2018, former First Lady Michelle Obama tweeted, congrats to the entire Black Panther team. Because of you, young people will finally see superheroes that look like them on the big screen. I loved this movie, and I know it will inspire people of all backgrounds to dig deep and find the courage to be heroes of their own stories. The movie received a tremendous amount of praise that year. Why was this movie a milestone in racial representation? I think the movie was a milestone in racial representation because there has been this misnomer around Black folk that we're not into nerdy stuff, that we don't like comic books, we're not into video games, we don't like Marvel. I think the numbers show differently. And if you talk to Black communities, you'll find out that has never been the case, that we've always had diverse interests, but the marketplace has not always reflected that. So I think Black Panther was an example of one of the biggest examples to date of you know, Marvel of the movie industry saying, hey, Black folks, 
everyone, but certainly like black folk, <laughs> here is your opportunity to see yourself. And as someone who's an Afrofuturist and a lifelong nerd, I could have told them that, but it was like, finally, you, you didn't have to dig. You didn't have to go in the crates. You didn't have to go to the specialty shop or a niche place online. Anyone, it, whether you are in an urban area or a rural area, there you are on the screen being represented. Now, Black Panther was released before our racial reckoning of 2020. How does the new Black Panther Wakanda Forever movie resonate with audiences at this moment? I think one thing that's really interesting, right, is that when we saw what I'd like to call the resurgence of the civil rights movement, maybe in 2020, is that it was a moment where we saw connection, not just Black people, you know, standing up for what's right, but people of, of other colors joining them, right? That, that this is a moment when people are connecting with each other to say, we need to think about race differently. And I think that that's so interesting, right? Because you see this in the new movie where we see the alliance between Wakanda and or at least potentially an alliance between Wakanda and Namor's country, right? Under sea. And so we have an African country and a country that's sort of a descendant of the Mayans, right? Working together and thinking about the different ways that racism is iterated throughout the world and the different ways that people can come together to push back against that. And I found that to be really exciting. Mm. In both movies, Princess Shuri is a technological genius. What impact do you think it made on viewers to see this young Black woman as a brilliant tech inventor? I think it's had a huge impact on audiences of all stripes to see a young Black woman be intellectually curious, in fact, be the smartest or one of the smartest people in the MCU. And then for her to team up with Riri Williams, the kind of new Iron Man, right, who's also brilliant and is a teen, you know, wonder kid, I I think is really important for, for young people and folks of all ages. I know that my students at Georgia Tech have said to me that seeing films like Hidden Figures incited them and invited them to apply to Georgia Tech and pursue STEM, right? So I know that seeing Shuri makes folks have sort of similar reactions and for there to be a whole group of films, right? Or group of cultural production that's inviting people to rethink like, well, these are things that are possible for me. I've always liked to tinker, always liked science. I've always been into engineering and I can do that. And I can be wearing cornrows, a tracksuit. I don't have to conform to whatever notions of this is what a scientist, quote unquote, is supposed to look like or an engineer, right? I can also reflect my cultural background and wear my hair a particular kind of way or dress a particular kind of way, whatever that might mean, right? You yes. see a lot of science, in fact, in Shuri's lab. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, even in the first movie, she's respectful of her brother, the Black Panther, but Shuri is the smartest person in the room. Can we agree on that? Right, right. Oh, well, at least until Riri Williams shows up, right? And I think that that's the exciting thing about the new Black Panther movie is that we don't just have a token Black girl genius. We now have at least two. And if you want to think about the Dora Milaje leaders as also a kind of military Black geniuses, we have a whole group of women Black geniuses here. And I think that that's so exciting. There's, you know, a history of representing Black genius that goes all the way back to colonial America and thinking about representations of Benjamin Banneker, who was the first free Black scientist and who used all the proceeds from his work to support the abolitionist movement. And we've seen that reiterated in storytelling and films, but it's often in the figure of a man and often just one isolated man. So again, I think the shift to seeing Black genius as including people of all sexes and genders and, and that there can be room for more than one Black genius uh, is important and amazing. And Susanna, I agree, this is so inspiring for our students at Georgia Tech, for real. And I should add for listeners who are not familiar with the new film, the character of Riri Williams is a 19-year-old Black female college student from the U.S., Okay, it's not easy to walk that fine line between 
spoilers and providing enough information for the context here. Dr. Morris, when was Afrofuturism first introduced to the public? So the term was coined in the 90s, but the concept, which Lisa describes beautifully in, in some of her work, goes back to at least the 19th century in the United States. Uh, but Afrofuturism, as we know it, you know, the 90s, listservs, the internet, folks were like, hmm, we kind of, we see what's going on with Black science fiction uh, and technology, and we want to talk about we want to name what we see out there in the world. So it could be anything from the artwork of Jean-Michel Basquiat or the music of anyone from Janelle Monet to Parliament Funkadelic to LaBelle. Look at all their kind of astronaut, far out futuristic outfits to Outkast to the art of Wangechi Mutu or Natrice Gaskins. There are lots of public examples to the very mainstream Black Panther films and comics and things of that nature. I would, I'd love to letter off that for a minute. As Susanna said, Afrofuturism, we can find Afrofuturist storytelling at least back into the 19th century. And I'm actually doing some work now where I'm arguing that the, the colonial African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley could also be seen as a precursor of Afrofuturism. There are a number of her poems that essentially imagine the mothership and that treat Black artists as star children. And that kind of imagery became so important to Afrofuturism with the jazz of Sun Ra in the 1950s. And then of course, as Susanna was saying, with the explosion of Black popular music uh, in the 1970s with Parliament and LaBelle. LaBelle, by the way, great call there, Susanna. My students love them, <laughs> love them. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Georgia Tech professors, Dr. Susanna Morris and Dr. Lisa Yazek. We're discussing Afrofuturism and the role of women in the new Black Panther film Wakanda Forever. The elaborate effects in these movies are astonishing. Uh, the 2018 Black Panther took home a BAFTA award for special visual effects. How did Black Panther and the portrayal of Wakanda through the science fiction lens create an even better understanding or expand the scope of the term Afrofuturism? I think it does so in a, a few different ways, right? I think there is a, there's an ongoing conversation around the term Afrofuturism in Black science fiction communities. Is this a term that we want to continue to use? Do we want to use other terms or do away with the term altogether? I think the film franchise is inviting a kind of diasporic conversation since both films feature folks of African descent from the continent and in the United States. And then the second film is adding Latin Americans and sort of a larger black and brown diasporic conversation around like, how do we understand blackness in the future or brownness in the future? So I think the film franchise really expands our conversation by what well, not only expands, but is tapping into a conversation that's happening even outside of the film franchise. Who are we in connection with one another? What does it mean to consider Blackness in the future? To go back to what Lisa brought up about Phyllis Wheatley and thinking about the mothership and, and star children and so on. I mean, I really feel like our earliest Afrofuturists in the United States anyway, some of them are, you know, formerly enslaved Africans, right? Who believed in abolition and who believed in the franchise and all of that for folks in the 1820s to imagine a future or in the 1790s to imagine the future or like a Phyllis Wheatley in the 1770s, she was never going to see all of her people free, right? right. But to imagine a future where that is possible, that's an Afrofuturist en enterprise, right? And so yes. there is this kind of forward thinking, like thinking about imperialism, right? And the end of the possible end of imperialism, that's really one of the things the second movie is about, and that's an Afrofuturist mm -hmm. enterprise. None of us are going to be alive to see the end of imperialism, but maybe our great-grandchildren might be, or their great-grandchildren, 
but we're doing that work to imagine a more just and liberatory future. I'm so excited, Susanna, to hear you say this, because this is something that our colleague and, and my, my writing partner, Isaiah Lavender, works on, and he talks about technologies of hope and how technologies of hope were built by enslaved Africans in, um, in the United States and how much this idea of hope, right, hope for abolition, hope for the end of imperialism, hope for equity in terms of race or gender is the, the driver behind so much change. And the idea that you see that kind of hope writ large in the Black Panther movies is, again, very exciting. I wondered if from non-academics or from people even outside of your specialty, if, if you meet with raised eyebrows sometimes when you say that your academic area is science fiction. Uh, I don't. Not really. What about you, Lisa? No, I actually tend to be met with envy, quite frankly. Um, and <laughs> I, I think that's because there are hundreds, probably even thousands of us that are researching and creating and teaching and disseminating science fiction and, and, and uh, allied genres like Afrofuturism, teaching this within universities. But most of us have to pass as something else. I'm really a physics professor who just happens to teach science fiction, or I'm really a creative writing professor who just happens to have an incredible award-winning uh, authorial career, right? But most people don't get to do that full time. And I think that when, you know, at a place like tech where Susanna and I can actually really work on science fiction and think about it, and especially in relation to the sciences and technologies our colleagues are creating across the campus, it's been very positive and, and people seem really excited about this possibility for, for us and for other schools as well. What are your thoughts, this can be for either or both of you, on how Black Panther showcases Black actors in a multitude of roles as heroes and villains and somewhere in between? I think that's hugely important, right? I mean, it, it's you don't just want representation as the token black person who's the good person who sacrifices themselves. Like for how long did we have that? What what is it called? Like the magical Negro? I think that's what it's called in Hollywood. The idea that you have this one talented black person and they're always good and they always sacrifice themselves for like the white hero. It was so nice to not have to worry about the white heroes or the white villains even right and to see. I think it's it really shows you how central this is becoming the American imagination that we can imagine not just a token Black person as a token hero or a token villain, but you get to do all the roles. And I think to add to that, not only are Black folks sort of allowed to be in the full depth and breadth of the, the imagination, we see Black cultural production at the center, right? So from the costumes, yeah. the outfits, the way yes. people adorn their bodies, and this was emphasized in the first film, but continues throughout the second, most of the actors are brown skinned, they're darker skinned. And there is a huge continuing problem in Hollywood where, you know, colorism, right? Where the lighter yeah. you are, the more closer you are to kind of the European Western ideal, you know, the, the more acceptable you are in terms of the cultural imagination. And in Wakanda, people are, are, are pretty brown, right? And that's yeah. really beautiful to see that not only can you be a hero, a villain, you might be a hero and a villain in the same movie, low key, yeah. but also we we're seeing Black folk who are un unambiguously Black and Black folk come in all colors of the rainbow from your Meghan Markle to your, you know, Wesley Snipes, right? But in right. this movie, we're, we're doing the latter half of the spectrum. And I think that's <laughs> fine because oftentimes the lighter end yeah. of the spectrum really is what gets highlighted and Black folk look all kinds of ways. Indeed, although no one has control over it. I mean, not about the representation in the casting, but I mean, I, I know of some Black women who feel extremely self-conscious about how pale-complected they are. And I think it's so sad when that too must be a consideration. Indeed. What do each of you think about Wakanda Forever's portrayal of Black women and their role in society? I mean, we've talked about how fantastic it is to see the scientists, but 
What about the overall representation? There was a little bit of controversy online, as there tends to be, uh, with the portrayal of Black women and, of course, the unfortunate exit of Chadwick Boseman due to, you know, his death. And I saw some, you know, conversation around, like, there's a lot of Black women in the film and we need to have a male Black Panther step up and we hope it's not Shuri and all of this. What? But yes, there was. There, there really was. It was unfortunate. But that wasn't the main story. I bring that up just to say that I don't know that I would call the film feminist per se, maybe, but there are Black women showing up as royalty, as leaders, as scientists, as military strategists, as spies, Black women in all these spaces, right, as spiritual leaders and so on. And I think it parallels and mirrors how we see Black women move in our actual communities across the diaspora. So it was very affirming. I've seen the film twice. I will go see it again in theaters. <laughs> and just looking around and seeing, there were all kinds of people in the theater. I saw it once here in New Jersey. I'm on fellowship and then also in Harlem. And there were lots of Black people and folks just looked really affirmed. You know what I mean? They just seemed so happy to see themselves Black women of different ages, mm -hmm. Right. Not just young yeah. black women, but black women in their 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond. So it's a reflection of our community and it's a beautiful thing. It is. Yeah. Susanna, when you saw it in Harlem and then in New Jersey, were people dressed up? Because I've I've been I saw both Black Panther and the Woman King here in Atlanta. And it has been a, a, just the amazing the costume parade is it was incredible. Like everyone just is embracing that. And I thought it was exciting. There were definitely folks dressed in white because that was supposed to be the, yes. the morning dress code. Yes. I see as I feel like Atlanta is a special place. Well, we are ground so. zero for cons and and black science exactly. fiction creation is just so rampant here, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. So just to ladder off what Susanna was saying, one of the things that really struck me about the second movie is that Obviously, Chadwick Boseman's death is it's a tragedy and it, it stinks, right? I, of course, we all wanted to see him as Black Panther again. Having said that, I have to say, when I saw the first movie, I was just so intrigued by the women and I wanted to know more about their world because they were the ones who seemed to actually be running everything and doing everything. And, and I have to admit, I was excited that the directors took this opportunity with Wakanda Forever to really explore women's work in all its diversity. And it felt to me sort of like, I almost like echoes of, of the civil rights movement in, in the U.S. as I've studied it, right? Where at least historically speaking, men were often the public face, right? That like Martin Luther King is, is like the, the Black Panther. This is a terrible analogy. I should stop immediately, right? But but men tend to be at the forefront, or at least historically so, in the civil rights movement. But women were doing tremendous amounts of work in the background, right? Going door to door, connecting with white women one on one, and trying to build those personal bridges to bring together a better future. And this is one thing I find exciting about Wakanda Forever is it, it's finally a moment to celebrate the work that women do, and especially Black women, to build better futures. Mm. And by uplifting the two female tech geniuses in the film, in the new film. You've spoken about how it has increased enrollment, or at least you've heard some stories from students who were inspired to apply to tech. What are your hopes for how Wakanda Forever might empower young Black girls to pursue STEM professions? I think that just the images of Sherry running her lab, Riri having her rogue lab, these are women of different class experiences, right? Sherry is literally a princess, right? Yes. And Riri is a working class girl from Chicago. Yeah. And that regardless of your class background, right? Like genius exists everywhere. So I think that young black women seeing these portrayals have, again, as Lisa mentioned, more than one. And I, again, I don't want to dismiss even the, the scientists in the back, they're all black folk and most of them are black right. women, but there are lots of black folk in the background who are scientists. Yeah. It's not like, oh, Princess Shuri is an anomaly or Riri's an anomaly, no. 
they are part of this larger Black genius, right? right? So I, I think that it will impact young Black folk, young Black girls in particular. And now there are other films, you know, they're in addition to Hidden Figures right. and other things, we can add the Black Panther franchise. Yeah. And I, my hope is that it will also make make young women more comfortable in their skin. I think, Susanna, you had mentioned before that you have students who say, wow, I can be a Black woman and a scientist and have cornrows. And that's a massive change from when I first got to tech back in 2000, because I remember mentoring young Black women and they they were just like, my mom will not let me have cornrows. Like my professors advise against it. I really just want to get my hair put back. And it was really an interesting struggle over hair at Georgia Tech of all places. The hair struggle, I understand. It was interesting to see it play out at Georgia Tech. So yeah, hopefully the more images we have of 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 diverse women in science, the the more that women themselves can be diverse in science. Dr. Lisa Yasek, Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and Dr. Susanna Morris, Associate Professor of Literature, Media, Communication, and Black Media Studies at Georgia Tech. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is out in theaters now. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans gets slimed at the new Slumu Institute in Buckhead. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The Slumu Institute opened a new hands-on sensory experience in Buckhead last month. It's a colorful place filled with slime showers, a slime wall, various ooey-gooey interactive elements, and a sensory room with kinetic sand. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke via Zoom with the Slime Queen herself, co-founder Karen Rabinovitz. Karen began by sharing how she first discovered slime. So, well, when I first discovered slime, I was four years old. I played with the Mattel version, and I have really distinct memories of being a complete slime fanatic, having every single variety. That was the only thing I wanted as a holiday gift or any kind of present. There were epic fights in my house because I was not the neatest child. And now I'm flashing forward to my late 40s. And I actually was going through a very, very hard time in my life with a lot of loss, a lot of tragedy around me and intense grief and mourning. And it, it was a really, like I said, hard time and it put me into a depression. And one day a friend of mine came by and her daughter was with her and her daughter was 10 and happened to have slime. And she had today's slime, which is handmade and 
really beautifully colored and scented. And I was very curious about it, especially because of my early childhood love of the non-Newtonian fluid. And I said, oh, Maddie, I want to play with, I want to play with your slime. I have to, I have to see what today's is about. It was so different from the way I expected it to be. And so different from the slime I grew up with. I was completely enthralled the slime I was playing with smelled like Fruit Loop cereal. So the minute I smelled <laughs> it, it was like I was seven. I was at the dining room table and trying to construct my best argument for one more bowl. And of course, losing that argument. And four hours went by. And I, I didn't even hang out with my friend. I was just all up in the slime world with her daughter, talking about all the different textures, trying to understand the nuance. She was showing me all the things you do with today's slime, you know, how you can make bubbles, how it makes pops, how you, you know, the quote unquote satisfying all the different ways to play with it. What's a good play in a slime world? What's not considered quote unquote satisfying play? And when they were leaving, I really kind of realized that this semblance of time was my first time in probably two years where I had a genuine smile. Like I was saying, I was really, I mean, in a very bad place. I had lost my husband and nine months on the heels of losing him, I lost my cousin in the Parkland school shooting. And I just, I didn't think life could ever recover. I mean, I was living in a place of just acceptance of pain. And for me to have escaped pain in a way that was so playful and joyous was kind of miraculous. So I said, where, where do I just, I have to get more. And she's, she told me about kids online selling slime through their, you know, individual shops. And I became an avid slime buyer. And I found myself getting really excited for my packages and I couldn't wait to open them. And then suddenly it was my secret Instagram account for my unboxing videos, like a child. <laughs> So these kids, wait, so these kids were making slime at home and selling it on different social media platforms? Or selling it on their own shops or, you know, whether they had Etsy shops or they had their own Shopify shops. And I, I found myself enthralled and I wanted my really close friend to experience it because A, she has two daughters and B, she was going through an incredibly stressful time as well. Her husband had a stroke and it led to a brain injury. And the result is that he is disabled and he doesn't have the ability to speak anymore. And he really can't do any activities of daily living without support. And she has a daughter who has a genetic syndrome with all the same symptoms. So her stress level was really through the roof. And I said, I know this sounds wild, but I I have to give you slime. I I know that this is going to be something you'll appreciate. And that began, well, it started as weekly slime dates, which became daily conversations and daily playing with slime and getting her, both of her daughters involved and seeing how her daughter, who is neurodiverse, really had this unbelievable happiness when playing with the slime, seeing her other daughter react to it, you know, just the way we were playing together. It was like this incredible, magical thing. And I finally said, we we have to bring this to people. And we have very different, but super complementary skill sets. You know, my partner, Sarah, is got a hospitality background based in guest experience and comes from a business management um place and you know has her MBA and loves a good PL and also has a lot of experience around building spaces. And my background is around marketing, storytelling. Uh, I'm very heavily involved with social media. I was very early to that space from a marketing perspective and working with influencers. So I was like our our joint skill set and our overlap is we have very similar visions of design and storytelling and where do we want a brand to be, grow? Like, how do we want it to be? And I was like, we could do something together. And we're in our, you know, late 40s. Now we're, you know, 50 plus. But 
we're coming at it from a really different place and we could do something magical. And a year later we opened Slumo Institute in New York and now have three spaces. Wow. And the Sarah that you're talking about is the, your co-founder, Sarah Schiller. Okay. Sarah Schiller. And I think the kind of one of the most important parts of our business is our philanthropic sensibility. I mean, we feel very strongly about supporting both mental health and neurodiversity. So, you know, we have hired adults who are diagnosed with, you know, on various levels of the spectrum and who are autistic. 85% of adults with autism cannot get jobs. We partner with MindUp, which is Goldie Hawn's Foundation for Mental Wellness for kids globally. And the layers of that for us are are just as important as the you know playing with slime in our world or kinetic sand and, and getting into that sort of mindset of play but play is really healing and play when you play with other people and whether it's your family or your friends or you're coming with your entire company and it's a corporate event you're connecting with them and you find that suddenly both of your hands are in the slime or the sand or the other compounds that we have. And, you know, time goes by and you're really in the moment and you're smelling all of our like compounds are, are scented and you'll smell things like birthday cake or vanilla ice cream or lychee or jasmine. And if you're an adult, something could remind you of your honeymoon. If you're a kid, you're like, oh my God, this is like my birthday cake. And it's this incredible feeling. And you're delighting four of your five senses through the space. There's scent experiences, there's sound experiences, there's visual experiences, there's immersive video, there's the ability to make your own and design your own slime, which you take home with you. So it, it's a really kind of beautiful way to spend time with people. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about the creation of the slime itself. How do you guys make the various textures and colors and smells? So we make all of our slime with Elmer's glue. If you are in our basement, you would see legitimately an entire, you know, city block's worth of glue at all times. (laughs) And of the three types of glue we use, they have different consistencies and textures. So it's about the blending of various glues and other ingredients, whether it is lotion or glycerin or air dry clay or fake snow or various beads, you're coming up with, you know, about 15, 16 main textures, but then you start experimenting with blending textures and suddenly you have this never ending algorithm of slime combinations and, and ways to approach it. And you're really getting to play with all of them in our world. And they all live in these beautifully designed vats that hold five gallons. So you don't sort of get this in the, in, in your home This is like all the things you can't do at home, you get to do in our world. Right. So as you mentioned, uh, you opened the SLUMU Institute in 2019 in New York, and this is such an interactive place. How did you all pivot during the pandemic? We pretty much immediately went into, within two weeks, we were doing virtual classes. And our virtual classes began as one-offs with each different texture. We started to see the hunger from our audience for this. So then we started to come up with curriculums, six week after school classes, six week, you know, week after week with the same group of people, Camp Slumu. We started to do corporate classes where we were teaching companies and this became the adult, the, the adult's way to escape. And ha- instead of a drink after work or a company offsite, they were getting together on Zoom and all making slime together and being silly together because it really kind of brought back that sense of community and happiness. We obviously really kind of developed out our e-commerce offering and a subscription service. And that really got us through a very challenging time. And then we came back as the world and New York City enabled us to come back. And, you know, we put in protocols such as alcohol wipes by every single slime. In the beginning, we always had wipes, but then we made sure they were alcohol-based. And, you know, what we found was that people were just really hungry to experience again. And 
and really hungry to get out and connect and play. And we made it through and are now in a time of spreading the slimy love across America. <laughs> so at the beginning, when people were doing this over Zoom, they could purchase some slime and do it at their home while also connecting with each other. Exactly. Slimu Institute co-founder Karen Rabinovitz speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. We'll be back with more of their conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. If you are just joining us, we've been listening to City Lights producer Summer Evans speak with Karen Rabinovitz, co-founder of the Slumu Institute, a new slimy sensory experience in Paquette. Karen, you have some Atlanta ties. I read that you are an Emory graduate and you interned here. I did intern there for Women's Wear Daily in 1993 to 1994. I'm aging myself. I was a senior in college and my boss then is still my friend. We still talk. I was obviously just in Atlanta and for our you know, installations and opening. And um, I spent time with her and she was there. And then I actually met some other interns of hers. And I was like, oh my God, we all like all molded (laughs) under Anita. Oh, full circle moment. (laughs) Yeah. So how does it feel to now have a facility open here in Atlanta? It's really incredible and kind of hard to believe. I never realized this is what I would be doing. it's actually, if you really knew me, this is the most authentic thing I've ever done in my career is being in this world of slime. I recently bumped into somebody that I knew from growing up and we were friends when we were, you know, babies. And I told her, this is what I'm doing. And she started screaming, like, you loved slime. Like my mom used to yell at you for bringing slime to my house. <laughs> this makes so, it makes so much sense. And doing it in a place where, you know, I sort of first left home and created sort of my own version of a life for myself outside of my family is, it sounds really cheesy, but it's really meaningful. Mm, That's wonderful. So for this location in particular, how will guests interact with the slime? Can you talk about the various immersion areas? Sure. So I would tell people to give themselves, you know, a good 90 minutes Sometimes people are spending two hours. Sometimes people are there for even longer. It begins with, first, you have to come in and get your slime name. Uh, We got our name from a really funny social media behavior where we saw people online saying, change the vowels of your name with O-O, and that's your slime name. So summer would be Sumor, and I am (laughs) Kuroon, and slime is Slumu. So that's how we got our name. So the first thing you do is you get your new name tag and you're wearing your new name. And on some kind of psychological level, you're giving people permission to be somebody else, which then gives them the opportunity to almost be silly and to let go of the constructs that they think they have to be in. And then you enter this world that is really colorful and expansive and scented in yummy ways and silly and you know to me all of that is really healing uh the first thing you then do is you have um our slime and repeat that's our version of a sort of step and repeat at an event but it it's i mean it's like probably 60 70 foot wide um and you know taller than anybody can reach you know 20 feet tall of a slime wall and you smear slime on the wall and this is like what I was saying. You get to do things you can't do at home. When in your life can you smear slime on a wall at right. home? <laughs> and Might get in trouble. Time, this wall, yeah, it changes. It's like beautiful, like the rainbow 
Peruvian mountain. Please, I'm begging you to Google it because it's the most beautiful mountain and that's what this wall looks like. We have gigantic slingshot where you are slingshotting slime against a sort of plexi, but someone's standing behind plexi. So your boss could be there, you know, your mom, your best friend, your kids, the birthday person. Um, we have what we call the VAT gallery, and there's probably around 25 different vats of slime. Remember, each one's five gallons. They're all different textures. There's signage near them, so you can learn about the texture. And on the wall is a video that kind of gives you the tips for slime tricks and making bubbles and pops. I find that people aren't really looking at it. They don't even care. They're just you know, digging in and diving in. And some of the vats have little fun accessories like a tennis racket that you push it down and you lift it up and slime drizzles down like angel hair spaghetti. And it's a great hashtag satisfying moment. There's a kinetic sand world where our kinetic sand is in what we call sand dunes, where we've kind of reimagined an individual sandbox that is made of this like giant sort of magenta, looks like a crystal geode and it's got black light inside and it's all mirrored. So it's an infinity effect of playing with kinetic sand and these slimy mirrors that you're, it's really an interactive video screen, but the video maps your body, which turns into like a slime avatar in this drippy, really psychedelically cool kaleidoscopic slime cave and as you move your avatar moves so you can throw virtual slime at somebody and there's a whole sound experience where you're standing under cone like these domes like cones in a way and each one has a different asmr sound whether it's cooking whether it's crunchy whether it's liquidy whether it's whispers there may or may not be one that's all slime farts um <laughs> There's Slumu Falls where slime is falling down on you. There's the heart of slime where you see your heartbeat on slime and what it does to you from a biometric feedback standpoint. And you're designing and making your own slime. So you're essentially leaving with an $18 slime where you're choosing the scent and the color and really cute charms that go on top. And there's a lake of slime and an obstacle course and little surprises and other things throughout. I've been talking a lot. I'm sorry. No, no, this is so awesome. I mean, just interactive in so many different ways. People can really just be their inner child or if they're a child, this is a perfect place for them. Exactly. Yes. I read that the Institute offers sensory hours. What does that entail? So that's when we are not going to do the things that are really loud because the space can be really loud. The slingshot that I mentioned that hits that plexi and it is bam and loud. And at our Slimu Falls area, we play a song that is pretty much loud and um, disco ball lighting and a party. And people are kind of like interacting with our slime tender who's screaming like, when I say slime, you say time, slime. And everyone screams time. We're not doing that at sensory hours. We're selling less tickets. It's really about those who are sensory oriented and sensory sensitive having a calmer experience because it can get really energetic in our world. And we're really, like I mentioned earlier, in support of being inclusive around neurodiversity. Mm, gotcha. Lastly, Karen, I wanted to ask, why do you think this is a great place for both kids and adults? Because we are living in what I believe is probably the most difficult and emotionally charged time period that that I think as humans that we'll experience from you know previous generations and the next generation. You know, the news, it's really hard to read. There's a lot of of dissent. There's a lot of disagreements. There's a lot of hate in the world. When you come into Slumu, all of that is gone. It doesn't matter what your belief system is. It doesn't matter where you fall on, a, on the fence of politics. You know what matters? Playing. Just get out of your head. Put your phone down. You get to let go of stress in our world. I mean, there's science around the act of squeezing and how squeezing does relieve stress and tension. That's what you do with slime. You squeeze. You're smelling things. And scent is the sense that is closest tied to memory. So 
you're smelling things that might remind you of something really amazing or you're smelling something new and maybe you love that scent and that's the scent you decide to scent your slime with. And when you go home, even if you never play with it and you just smell it every now and then, you're taken back to that joy. This is a, a place of escape. I think we really need that right now. And I think it's really healing for people to just play and remember the simplicity of connecting with others as well as yourself. Karen Rabinovitz, co-founder of the Slumu Institute, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Their new Atlanta location is in Buckhead, off Peachtree Road Northeast. More information is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., artist Andre Henderson talks about his new exhibition, Clotilda, The Final Journey on view at Gallery 72 through February. Plus, Atlanta Symphony Concertmaster David Kusharan takes us through Vivaldi's Four Seasons. He'll be the violin soloist and conduct the orchestra in a special concert on January 4th. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with Georgia Tech professors Dr. Susanna Morris and Dr. Lisa Yasek, where we discussed Afrofuturism and the role of women in the new Black Panther film Wakanda Forever, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org org slash city lights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.